Welcome to Dementia Resilience with Jill Lorenz, a candid conversation as we learn about types of dementias, such as Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, frontal temporal, and Lewy body, and the effects on the people we love. Jill's years of dedication and experience help you adapt, overcome obstacles, and find positive outcomes. It's time for Dementia Resilience with Jill Lorenz. my friends. I hope everyone's doing well all around the world. We are ending summer. Oh my goodness. I don't know where you live, but it is hot, hot, hot in Denver these days. (laughs) And I am trying very, very hard to answer all of your emails and phone calls, and I really appreciate the feedback I recently received from all of you about my two shows about what we look for for symptoms with early stage Alzheimer's and what we can do to try to make our world and our life a little bit better if we're trying to avoid Alzheimer's and various dementias. And with that, I thought it would be great to invite Bree Betcher who is a PhD who works in, at University of Colorado Hospital, and you are an associate professor of neurology. And I'm glad to have you, Bree. Thank you so much for having me again. It's been a little bit. Lots, has hap- lots have happened. <laughs> a lot has happened. Since the last time you were here, COVID struck. Yes. And has changed everyone's world. Mm-hmm. And prior to recording today in the studio, we were talking a little bit about the changes that that has has made for our clients and patients. Absolutely. I think that this has been um, now, and we keep saying a year, but it's it's now been a year and a half or more of uh, significant changes, um, both in terms of how we are all coping on a day-to-day basis, but also how we're handling medical illnesses, um, new diagnoses, uh, long-standing diagnoses, you know, really all of us trying to to persevere and um, live as best we can right now. Absolutely. And every day I receive questions, and I imagine you do too, about what can we do? What changes can we make? How can we live better so that we can somehow keep the the whole realm of dementia and the various diseases under it far, far away from us. <laughs> yes, absolutely. That's the most common question that I I receive as a provider and as a researcher. And you know, my background is um, really looking. I'm a neuropsychologist and an aging brain researcher. And so what that means is that I'm very interested in understanding healthy aging and specifically what factors put us at risk for memory decline and Alzheimer's disease, but also what factors might protect us over time. You know, I think um, we all know that aging, healthy aging is is not just one picture or narrative. And so I really try to focus on the heterogeneity that we see over time and what uh, what those different trajectories look like and how do we harness the good factors to really promote 
optimal aging. You know, I think we've gotten stuck a little bit in our aging research field on on thinking about what is successful aging. And I, I don't love that term because the opposite is, is not very appealing. And so I, I'm trying to focus a lot on optimal aging for an individual. And I think those are the some of the big questions. So I have a question for you. And this is something that concerns me greatly. And I'm sure a lot of my listeners have this question. Is there such a thing as it being too late to try to make yourself healthy? Now, as an example, I uh, the listeners know that I have decided to make a life change and to focus on eating better, which would result in a much-needed weight loss because of pounds that were put on uh, through COVID, working at home. You know, you have everything at your fingertips, and whenever you feel hungry, oh, that bag of chips looks good. And my big worry, Bree, is I'm 59. I've been healthy most of my life. I don't think I'm starting too late. I rock climb for years and years. Um, I, I, I mean, technical climbing, and have always been active since I was a child. But I had a period of about 10 years, 15 years where I was so engaged in my work that exercise sort of took a backseat and I was not always consistent. And I'm a little bit worried about the time span from when I moved to a new area which didn't have the granite that I could climb to an area where I couldn't do that and I didn't make it a priority in my life to get to the gym every day. You know, so I'm worried about those 15, 10, 15 years that I lost. I, first of all, I commend you for making changes in your life. I know you and I were just talking about that. That is always hard to do, but I think uh, directly to your question, um, I don't think it's it's ever too late to make health and lifestyle changes to put you on a better path. Um, you know, I think it's a complicated answer because, of course, once you develop Alzheimer's disease, um, there are symptoms that will be progressive. But even in that context, we know that starting a cardiovascular health exercise routine can be helpful. Um, so I don't think it's too late. And I think most of us can really relate to having periods of time, sometimes lengthy periods in our life where we have not prioritized our health. Um, and and so I, I, that certainly resonates with me. Um, I try to walk the walk and um, I'm, I'm very uh, inclined towards exercise, but I've had periods where I have felt very stressed and did not prioritize that either. Um, and I think what the research is showing, so not just my belief, but what the research is showing is that it's not too late to initiate a new health plan for yourself and to try to get on track. And so uh, that may look differently for a specific person depending on your own medical needs. Um, but I, I would focus more on that current and future-oriented plan of what are things that I can do now to shift this trajectory um, I focus a lot on paths and trajectories because I think we often feel like it's fixed and it's going to go in a straight line, and it and it doesn't. And so just as you speak to having 
variations and undulations in your exercise path, I think all of us will experience that with, with aging overall, and it's not too late to steer it a bit. Well, that's good. How do we, how do we regulate our immune system? Can we regulate our immune system so that maybe we don't end up with diabetes or, or something that maybe we cause ourselves. And I, and I don't mean that to be a, um, a tough thing, but I mean, you know, I'm not, I'm not blaming anybody or, or throwing any, any shade on anybody, but, but we have cholesterol problems due to eating incorrectly. Um, and we get diabetes sometimes from eating incorrectly. Is that true? And how do we regulate our immune system to be healthy? Yes, absolutely. So that's a great question. My A lot of my research focuses on the immune system. Um, I wish I had very concise, easy points to make there, but I will I will try to, to have some brevity in the response. Um, yes, I think that in terms of your immune system, we are learning more and more about how that impacts health and disease. Um, we know that our immune system should be doing something good for us, right? This is how we survive. It detects uh, pathogens. It detects um, danger signals in the body that tell you that something's going wrong and fights it. Um, we also know that as we get older that our immune system is changing and it's not always doing the right thing for us over time. Um, it can become dysregulated for a variety of reasons. But um, as you as you and listeners probably know, as we get older, we're more at risk for a range of things, age-related cancers, things that we know are just more common as we get older that likely have something to do with that shift in your immune system. And so that leaves the question of what what's predicting that, influencing that. We know things like exercise influence your immune system in a positive way. Uh, we know that taking care of your cardiovascular health, so your heart health, really impacts things like diabetes, uh, stroke risk, all of which are also intimately connected with inflammation in your immune system. And so thinking about Alzheimer's disease or diseases in general from a systemic full body view, I think is really important because it it reinforces that how we treat our body, how we use our body on a day-to-day basis can really impact our immune health, cardiovascular health, and ultimately our aging health. Right. And so as a researcher, you know, I know because I'm in a study that uh, out of Wash U St. Louis, they will look at our spinal fluid, Mm -hmm. okay, because that can be a um, correct me if I'm wrong, a biomarker to say if you might have beta amyloid in your system and an abundance of it, which we know can at times be devastating if if that turns into, uh, you know, the full-blown pathology for Alzheimer's, right? So how how are you studying the blood, the spinal fluid, the inflammation you were speaking of earlier? Does all that help you? as you're studying that, to learn a little bit more about Alzheimer's and various dementias? 
It does. You know, historically, we've often focused on two proteins with Alzheimer's, amyloid and tau, which we know are very important. But there's now increasing evidence, even articles that just came out in the last couple of weeks suggesting that studying the immune system should be a core feature of understanding early stages of Alzheimer's disease. So in our laboratory, what we do is we're really trying to build this healthy aging program where we bring in people and we learn from you, the community, over time by observing you. We look at your blood for different markers of the immune system and Alzheimer's risk factors. That gives us a window into your periphery, so your body. We also look at your spinal fluid, which bathes your, your brain, and your brain releases fluids directly or proteins directly into the spinal fluid. It's kind of our window into your central nervous system or your brain. So we collect those simultaneously. We get a picture of your brain, an MRI. We do some memory testing, which everybody loves. <laughs> and then we ask it so many questions about your immune health history, you know, um, infections, hospitalizations, even recent things like respiratory infections, all of that, to try to comprehensively understand you as a full person and what aspects of your immune health and immune exposures might put you on one trajectory or another. And we really want to harness that information to learn if there are windows of time where we could intervene and prevent future decline. Ooh, that's exciting. Are you looking at people who are healthy or people in the early stages? So my program currently primarily focuses on healthy people, and healthy is a, a hard term to define. What I mostly mean there is uh, bringing in people who have not been diagnosed with mild cognitive impairment or Alzheimer's disease. Um, I think a lot of us, as we get older, have some concerns about our memory and thinking, but um, uh, this is really a study for for all of those folks in the community who are aging in a, in a typical manner. You know, you may have some concerns but haven't been diagnosed yet, or you may have no concerns, but kind of a, a general healthy aging community approach. So a couple of years, you sent me a flyer. Mm -hmm. I sent it out to all my people. Mm -hmm. I hope you got enough for this study. Still ongoing. <laughs> okay. Well, we'll I'll send it out again if you're taking new people. But at that time, I think you were looking for people 62 and older. Or am I in the ballpark? Yeah. So for that study, um, that's the immunity and aging study. We call it the LEA study. Um, that is for people 60 years and over. Um, and that's looking at all those factors that I just mentioned, trying to understand how your immune system might change over time. And if there are specific stages where it's doing something positive for you, you know, fighting the good fight versus switching teams and working against you. And so um, that's that study. We are continuing to enroll. We had a understandable pause for a while last year due to the pandemic, but are right. continuing to enroll and have added some new new components to it as well. Well, I'm really glad that you're back up and running on that because I really think it's exciting that you're trying to see people who have maybe done something right. They're not in any particular danger at this point of Alzheimer's and really saying, Wow, what what have they done? What's different in their body? So, are you looking at maybe the the um, all the blood tests and and I know there's uh, HDL that's good and bad. Is that right? Correct. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, we look at a wide variety of factors. We try to not just strictly focus on on one thing and miss out on others. So we will be looking at a range of Alzheimer's disease risk factors in the blood and in the spinal fluid. We look at um, inflammation in both compartments. Um, we look at some you know, more novel uh, proteins as well that give us a sense of your cellular health. Um, so we will be looking at all of that to kind of get a, a full sense, almost a signature of what it looks like to age without memory problems um, and following people over time to, again, learn from, from both sides of the coin and everything in between on that spectrum. You know, I found it pretty exciting that before I started my diet and my life change, I went in and had some blood tests taken and uh, just wanted to see where my stats were. Mm -hmm. And I was really excited to go back after week four and was amazed at the difference. I mean, my cholesterol went down a long way. That's fantastic. I mean, that was amazing. I'm finally in the safe zone, right? And I don't think people realize that there are some changes that you can make in that way. Mm -hmm. Now, let's talk about what if they don't. Um, What what can happen if they have infections and maybe we're hit with COVID? Mm -hmm. Um, That's a a huge question right now. So, Prior to COVID hitting, we um, were already asking people about their infection history. And the reason we ask that, we all get infections. This is not meant to instill fear in people. We all get infections. But we also know that um, there's some evidence that once you have memory symptoms, that um, an infection might result in uh, further change in your cognition or your thinking ability. If you could imagine your immune system kind of being already dysregulated and primed and kind of overactive or dysregulated when you're hit with some sort of insult, so an infection or something else, um, it can have a hard time returning back to baseline. And so we were already starting to look at that before the pandemic hit. And now there's a huge and very unfortunate question of, what is this widespread um, infection going to to do to aging and the aging process? And who is at most risk for having long-term effects of that? Um, There are no simple answers right now. This will take time. It will take research participation. A lot of these studies currently have been focusing on hospitalized people, so the most severe people and how they look six months later. You know, we're really trying to better understand folks who, whether you have or you have not had COVID, um, what just exposure to the virus might do to your immune health and your thinking and memory over time. So we're now, we were very fortunate to get a supplement from the National Institute of Health to uh, start doing SARS-CoV-2, so the, the virus that causes COVID, antibody testing on everyone. So everyone who comes through that study gets SARS-CoV-2 antibody test, and we're going to be looking at that over time to see just even exposure, how that might uh, relate to these immune markers in memory. Are you taking people currently for that study? Yes. So what's the criteria? So that's the the, the LEA study that I was mentioning. That's for people who are 60 years and over who have not been diagnosed with MCI or Alzheimer's disease. 
um, who are willing to to have the um, spinal fluid and blood taken on the same day and go through this two-year process of a baseline visit and then two years later. Um, in that study, we will be able to provide the SARS-CoV-2 antibody test results. Um, and so that's that's uh, one change that we've been able to, to add to that. So learning of your, learning your uh, antibody results. So we already knew that sometimes familial relations can lead, if you have people in your genetic line, uh, can lead to family members being more predisposed to, to getting Alzheimer's. But what other what other things are you looking at that could impact that? Not just the familial, and and even with the with the with the COVID, what other risk factors do you think contribute? Um, that's a great question. You know, most of my work really focuses on uh, factors that. I hope to be preventable over time are things that we can intervene on. So there's amazing work going on in the field on genetics that I don't personally do, but, um, you know, has really shifted our view of uh, the immune system and its role in Alzheimer's disease. But again, I like to think about things that are uh, reversible, things that we can intervene upon. And so we also look at, in addition to your exercise, your general health, your infection history, all of those things that we've mentioned. Uh, We also look at things like, have you had um, a concussion recently? Have you had um, um, any sort of other environmental event that might change your aging trajectory? And so one of the other studies that that we have going on right now uh, is recruiting people who have had a concussion in the last five years. Um, this is something that's just been sorely overlooked in the literature. I think a lot of probably a lot of the listeners have heard about early life concussions and head injuries, you know, with the NFL and and all of that very controversial literature predicting future changes. But there's been very little studies on what happens if you get a concussion later in life when your immune system may already be changing. What does that look like? Mm-hmm. And ultimately, we need to better understand. Um, how that factor in, interacts with other risk factors and protective factors you have and whether or not we can intervene on something like that early to prevent concussions. So if you could explain that a little bit further. Mm-hmm. I talk about uh, concussions often on the show, but I, I try to tell people that sometimes that can be a reversible dementia if you just have one, maybe two long periods, and you let your brain heal for six, eight weeks, it will take away double vision, maybe you feeling like your balance is off, and so on and so forth. But it is different from the CTE, which Mm -hmm. is uh, continued and devastating hits to the brain. Correct. Like you were speaking about for professional athletes Mm -hmm. that are in uh, high-contact sports, um, and others, so boxing, you know, all kinds of things, football, hockey. What is what is the difference? Why why then does the CTE? What's different about the CTE 
And I'm not even sure what those initials stand for. Could you help me with that? Sure. So CTE stands for chronic traumatic encephalopathy. Um, I should say that there's a lot of controversy around that. Most of those studies have focused on a highly selective group of people, so people in professional sports, uh, leading lives that are probably different than you and me. <laughs> right. um, and so there's a lot of question about whether these repetitive, so um, even what we call subconcussive, just repetitive hitting of the head, uh, what that does for you long term and how that compares to a single concussion. As you said, I would hope that people feel rest assured that the typical course for a single concussion is that you would expect recovery um, um, you know, fairly quickly. Uh, you'll have a period of time where you may have some of the symptoms that you mentioned, but the the expectation is that you would get better. And we think that that's biologically likely different, as you might expect, from someone who is sustaining multiple head injuries over time um, due to their profession. Um, understanding why that is, is is a huge question. You know, they've shown in some animal models that multiple, multiple head injuries, multiple concussions, I should say, can A, cause systemic inflammation in your body over time and in your brain. Um, it seems to raise other risk factors. It seems to raise your risk factors for even having another concussion if you've had multiple. And so that seems to be a different path than a single concussion. However, we don't know when you are over the age of 65 if that somehow looks differently than if, if it has a different view uh, for your aging health than if you sustained it when you were younger. I can tell you anecdotally, we have patients in clinic who often tell us that they, they feel like um, after sustaining concussion when they were 70 that, that things did not resolve as quickly. And so we're trying to better understand why is that? Is there something about your immune health that's contributing to it? Were there already risk factors there that now have had this stress this hit and are unfolding because of it. It's really vastly understudied at this point. Well, let's take it a step further. What if somebody loses consciousness? Is that a game changer? Um, so that's a great question. Um, I think uh, certainly we've seen that loss of consciousness tends to suggest more significant injury, more significant uh, course for, for older adults in particular. But we don't know long term yet with a single incident later in life what that really means and whether or not these folks have underlying Alzheimer's pathology already there that is interacting with it uh, versus not. But certainly if you, if you look across um, the lifespan and, and think about risk factors for later cognitive decline, loss of consciousness is always a concern because it suggests that there is a, a greater level of severity there. But do you think most people probably at one time or another has fallen and hit their head? Um, that's another great question. Um, you know, I'm not really sure, actually. That's not something um, that I think I think that's something we have to really get at in an epidemiological study. You know, I often hear people we ask everyone in our studies if they've ever hit their head. And um, I would say that definitely not all of them are saying yes. And then some say yes, and we try to dig deeper, and it doesn't sound like it was a, a concussion. They didn't have any initial um, 
uh, seeing stars or, or any of those kind of initial symptoms of it. Uh, certainly not all of our folks in our study have reported that. But I think it's a good question about I think most of us can reflect on a time where we've hit our head. Whether or not it was enough to cause a concussion is a, is a bigger question. Right. The only reason I ask that is because I haven't met very many people that haven't taken a fall one or mm-hmm. two times in their life, right? Mm-hmm. I had a weird situation one time when I was in my 30s and I was at the airport and I was getting my luggage out of the back of the car and did not raise the hatch far enough. And that's when they had those kind of um, – a a piece that stuck out that was metal and it came down and hit me in the back of the head Mm -hmm. and I literally saw stars. I mean, that was was tough. But I've heard people, um, you know, slipping and falling on the ice Mm -hmm. or, you know, playing in a baseball game or you got hit or something happening. I, I bet there's not very many of us that haven't had something like that happen. Um, but it doesn't necessarily have to turn into anything bad. It just Correct. We just need to better understand um, which group of people does it mean something could, could be going on. We need to look out for them more because they have all these other risk factors. And again, kind of reframing it and thinking about prevention. I certainly always want to think about it in terms of exactly what you said. You know, when when we're getting close to winter, thinking about slipping on on ice and being careful about black ice, um, thinking about things like if you have balance issues, how alcohol impacts that and how you might be more at risk of falling. So fall prevention, I think, is a huge piece of that too. Great. This is a great discussion. I know a lot of our listeners really wonder about all these things. We're going to take a short break and we'll come back with Bree Betcher. Living and working with Alzheimer's and other dementias can often be challenging. Summit Resilience Training provides education, utilizing non-medical approaches for those who work with our friends affected by dementia. Believing families still need one-on-one assistance, we provide classes which help them understand the diseases affecting their loved ones, offering strategies and techniques for success with activities of daily living and working with confusing behaviors. We offer in-home assessments to clarify symptoms of dementia diseases and help families work together to find moments of joy while living with memory loss and impairment. Education programs instilling person-centered care philosophies are offered for professional caregivers working in communities and homes, which can be customized for their staff. Training is also available for first responders, such as law enforcement, fire, and EMT personnel. We are passionate that people with dementias, such as Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, and others, are approached with compassion and understanding, and those who work with them have all the tools they need for success. Call us at Summit Resilience Training, 303-420-6988 to schedule a class or in-home assessment. Visit our website at summitresiliencetraining.com for more information. Welcome back to Dementia Resilience with Jill Lorenz. Okay, I am back with Brianne Betcher from University of Colorado Hospital. You're an assistant associate professor in the Department of Neurology, and you study research, and you're looking at what we can possibly do to change our trajectory to try to stave off symptoms. And so your studies really focus on people who are healthy, and you're trying to to see what is different about their lives that maybe we could duplicate 
in someone else's life or changes we could make that could help us if we are on a path to Alzheimer's? Yes. So um, I think it's 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 kind of a multi-prong approach. So I'm definitely passionate and really invested in understanding what puts people at risk and also what protects people. I think people are often surprised to hear in an Alzheimer's research center that we have a strong focus on healthy aging, typical aging. And the reason for that is in part because we know that you don't overnight wake up and have this disease. It's something that's occurring over a period of many years, and the factors that contribute to it are probably going on for decades, which may sound scary, but I think is also such a tremendous opportunity to understand risk and protection. Just as you said before, what can we be doing in our 40s, 50s, 60s to put us down another path? And I think the other part of it for me is really trying to understand what are these windows of time where it would be best to intervene and how. Um, when we think about you know, the immune system, we've already seen in research that there are periods of time where the system seems to be activated and then deactivates, becomes dysfunctional. Um, and we might want to have a different therapeutic approach depending on the stage. So it's not going to be a, a one-size-fits-all one uh, approach. So really kind of going for that precision medicine, whole-person view. Okay. So as we're just having a conversation, I'm going to throw some things out to you um, and just to see what you think because I find it fascinating. As I am working with my clients – who have this diagnosis. I'm often stunned to find geophysicists with Alzheimer's to your housewife having it, okay? It doesn't seem to discriminate. But here's my question. We don't know how well those people took care of themselves. We don't have any idea if they were able to get seven or eight hours of good sleep per night. We don't know if they ate well. So did they exercise? So we really can't take that person as a whole. We have to really look at what was their life like because I think it's freaky for people sometimes <laughs> when they see somebody who's well-educated and spent their life you know, really using their brain and being super active in their environment and then end up with this disease. On the other hand, I think that I see, I could be completely wrong, that uh, when I see people who have been active most of their life that have skied, that have been, you know, runners, that have been really on top of their game for most of their life, rock climbers like me or whatever, you know, um, it seems like they have a, a, a better chance of maybe not getting this disease. Am I out of my mind saying that? <laughs> Talk to me, Bree. I... <laughs> no, I, I think that that's, um, that is true. And I think I always want to pause and say, you know, for people who are listening, who have known someone or cared for someone who they felt like did all the right things, um, that this is right. this can still happen. We know people who have taken care of themselves their whole life and develop cancer, um, develop Alzheimer's disease. Um, 
age is the biggest risk factor, which is very scary to think about. Um, But that said, we also know that you can kind of dial in and change your course a bit depending on these different factors. So as you said, even though we know people who are very highly educated, um, who are marathon runners, who develop Alzheimer's disease, we also know that your risk is greater if you um, have vascular risk factors, which means if you have high blood pressure, high cholesterol, central weights around your stomach, um, you know, are not exercising, sleep apnea that's not treated, all of these things can raise your risk. And so it doesn't mean that it's 100% sure that you won't develop it, but it does mean that if you address all of these different factors, your personal, you know, your risk should be lower at that point. And this is also supported, don't take my word for it, this is also supported by uh, a lot of research. You know, there was a Lancet report on dementia prevention that came out last year that suggested that a whole collection of factors, including ones that we've already talked about, um, may contribute up to 40% to dementia rates across the country. Can we talk about some of those? Mm-hmm. These are some questions I received from listeners, and I, and I didn't put them on our list of things we were going to talk about today, but here we go. Okay. <laughs> so uh, sugar, in, you know, how much sugar people ingest. Can that be a factor? So let me, uh, I'll take a a cautious approach to that. So um, I'm always careful about how we talk about diet and that I get a lot of questions about, should I only eat X type of food that has lots of antioxidants? Should I, you know, I think um, there's lots of reasons to believe that low sugar would be helpful um, for a variety of reasons, diabetes risk, you know, just general overall health risk associated with with vascular disease. Um, So certainly having a diet that is balanced, that is high in fruits and vegetables has been shown to be probably the uh, more optimal diet. And sugar would be a part of that, not having all this processed sugar, absolutely. Mm -hmm. But I do want to caution people that – Studying diet is is challenging, right? And so I always try to think about what is the mechanism by which it might impact your your health. And I think really thinking about anything that's good for your heart, good for um, your your cardiovascular health is going to be good for your brain. And that means probably having a well-balanced diet, high in fruits and vegetables, low on sugar, um, uh, but it is it is challenging to study. You know, we don't get to bring people in and control all aspects of their their diet. Absolutely. And I can tell you I've learned recently why it's so challenging. I had no idea that corn, even though I was born and raised in central Illinois, um, is high in fructose. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right? I mean, we make corn syrup out of it. I should have known that. Hello. Um, Carrots. Uh, right now on a diet that I'm on, I can't have any fruit because many fruits, such as peaches mm-hmm. and things like that, are not uh, not optimal in, in the weight loss program that I'm in. I, I will be able to have them sooner than later, but not right now, right? And nobody would really think – I mean, we've always been told that fruits are good for us, right? 
But I want to circle that back around to diabetes. Mm -hmm. So just because you have diabetes doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to get Alzheimer's. But it is definitely not helpful if you're trying to avoid it. Is that a fair statement? Yes, that's a fair statement in that um, uh, all of these factors that we talk about, it's it's not uh, definitive in terms of if you do this, you will definitely develop or not develop Alzheimer's disease. But it is fair to say that it, it will not help you in, in your, your path if you are engaging in a diet or lifestyle that puts you at risk for diabetes or cardiovascular disease broadly. You know, I think the fruit piece of it, I think that's something that's always good to talk with your personal uh, primary care doctor about because people have different goals. So there's specific goals related to weight loss that are more uh, prominent, and there are others that are not related to that but are more about cardiovascular health. And so um, I think that's something to definitely check in with your doctor about. Okay. I had a question from a listener, and I had to write this down. <laughs> um, what, if any, does folate or folic acid have on memory loss prevention? Does eating lentils, chickpeas, broccoli, avocados, spinach help in any way to slow age-related cognitive and memory decline? That was a great question, Heather. That is a great question. So I may have an unsatisfying answer to this, which is, um, you know, I think one of the best things to do, and again, I should preface this by saying I'm a PhD, not a medical doctor. Mm-hmm. Um, I think one of the best things to do is to, you know, meet with your primary care doctor and have blood work done on an interval that they think is appropriate and check some of these things. What I often see and worry about is when people start adding different supplements um, when they don't necessarily need them. And so right. having blood work done where you can see what's low, what's a little bit out of range, that can help give you a more personalized view of what you per, you know what you need to work on. Uh, again, it's not that one size fits all. If something's out of whack with your blood work and it's a vitamin specific issue, then your primary care doctor could tell you that's the one that you should probably add. Um, I really caution, I know that's not specifically the question, but I really caution against just adding various supplements without really talking with your doctor and seeing what your blood work is actually telling you. Um, You know, from a a clinical perspective, I see patients in clinic, um, I find it you know, really heartbreaking when I see people come in who are on tons of different supplements, are spending hundreds of dollars a month, and a lot of these haven't really been shown to do anything for your memory, and that's why they're taking them. And mm-hmm. so I always worry about people being taken advantage of um, in the, the health and wellness industry. Um, so talk to your primary care doctor about that and look at your blood work together. Right. And uh, with that, you won't say this, but I will. <laughs> Um, If any of you have read The End of Alls by Dr. Dale Bredesen, I want to just piggyback on what you just said. Please, please, please contact your primary care physician before you enroll in any any programs like that that say taking supplements and a keto diet will prevent Alzheimer's. Uh, There is nothing that I have found that proves that to be true. You try the things that you you are talking about, Bree. Mm-hmm. Work on um, being the best, healthiest person you can be. So let's shift gears. I want to ask you a different question. So how helpful 
do you think it is as a researcher to continue to learn new things, uh, to, uh, to take on more tasks, to play games that challenge your brain? Now, with that, I want to caution, um, there are some games out there that are, have been presented to the public. If they are based on speed, go to something different. I want you to do something that challenges your brain because I have found that when you play games that are simply based on speed and the speed increases, it makes people feel bad about themselves. So if you're playing any games like Lumosity, I just don't highly recommend those because it really makes people think, well, gosh, if I can't keep up with the speed of this this program, then I must be losing it. And I've had people call me in tears, literally in tears, saying, I think I'm losing my mind. I couldn't I couldn't keep up with that game. But playing word search games, uh, playing Scrabble or Words with Friends or um, concentration with your grandkids or or some matching games or learning a new skill like playing the piano or learning a new language. I think these are good. Your thoughts as a researcher? I think these are, are good as well. I have I have several thoughts about this. You know, um, I completely agree with you that there is not one prescriptive method to approach this. And so, um, you know, there there's not one brain game that's going to do the trick, right? And so, what there, what studies have shown um, is that if you are doing things that are intellectually engaging to you, and also um, many things that involve social interaction as well, so both of those factors seem to predict living a more healthy life longer, um, and are related to things like Alzheimer's risk factors, cognitive function over time. And so what does that mean? You know, when I talk to my patients, I have heard the same stories. You know, again, that's, it's really uh, disheartening when I hear people talk about trying to, to really pressure, pressure themselves to do a very specific task, and it makes them upset. There's no, there's no evidence to suggest that doing that single task is going to be most helpful. And in fact, if you're stressed and upset by it, that could actually make it worse. And so what I typically tell people is really to find, kind of take stock of what do you find meaningful and engaging um, and trying to incorporate that in your weekly life. If you're someone who really enjoys um, history, you know, reading books, uh, reading, uh, uh, you know, historical fiction, reading autobiographies, um, watching documentaries, going to lectures when possible, virtually or in person, um, incorporating things that you find meaningful and enjoyable will not only fulfill that role, but also can improve your mood, both of which have been shown to be protective over time. And so really coming to, you know, coming up with a plan for yourself that does not stress you out, um, that you find intellectually, socially meaningful and engaging. Well, let's, let's branch off of that then for just a second. What do you think the impact of social interaction is? Love, intimacy, these are things that I often see fall away when someone's been diagnosed and are progressing down the road. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a huge amount of loss for the care partner. Mm-hmm. Have you ever looked at that, the social impact, the, so, the intimacy impact? Um, yes. So I, um, I, 
I have not done a lot of research myself on the topic. We do look at things like stress and mood and how that impacts thinking over time. But I think that there are a lot of studies coming out now showing the benefits of positive mood, positive affect, um, social engagement, and how that, um, and leisure, leisure time, how that can really, again, positively impact your, your aging trajectory. Um, I think it's a little unclear right now the mechanisms by which that works, but we do know that people seem to have better outcomes. You know, things like loneliness are uh, absolutely a predictor of worse outcomes over time. And, you know, whether that's that's purely the social engagement and the affection and love you feel around other people, if it's or if it's something to do with how it's impacting your mood. Whatever the the source of it is, it seems like that engagement and staving off loneliness in particular seems to be really positive. Um, I have a, a dear colleague uh, who named Virginia Sturm who studies um, positive affect and how that impacts aging. And she uh, had a study recently where they looked at something called awe walks, where you she had people go outside and really kind of look at nature and engage, you know, um, in that way and showed a, a positive benefit of it. Um, and so I think there's a lot of interesting studies coming out. And I certainly think that uh, combating loneliness through social engagement of some type is really important. Can I ask you a personal question? Sure. You came from San Francisco, right? Correct. And uh, you came when Peter Pressman came over. Mm-hmm. And I'll never forget the first time I met you. I was <laughs> I was I was uh, having a fundraiser at a church, and uh, you had just moved here. Mm-hmm. It's been a, been several years ago now. How have you seen? UCH's research lab, um, and you know, coming from San Francisco, where you had wow, one of the best in the world as the leader there, right? Mm-hmm. Um, how have you seen research changing over the the last few years? How has it grown at UCH? Yes, yeah, so I have been here, gosh, for six years now. Um, and, uh, you know, part of the reason that I moved here, in addition to just loving the state and how beautiful it is, um, you know, was really that interest in helping to develop a center along with Hunt Potter, who's the director of the center, that really focuses and promotes – focuses on and promotes healthy aging and prevention. You know, I think one of the challenging things that we've seen across the country is a lot of these really renowned centers are on coastal regions or these other metropolitan regions that are not uh, not in our area. There are just huge swaths of the country that don't have enough resources to good dementia care. And so um, certainly by working with amazing colleagues, you know, that our group has grown quite a bit in the past six years. I think we've seen, um, you know, a really a surge in in research here, um, not only with our group, but in groups like geriatrics, internal medicine, who are all really interested in how do we promote healthy aging. And so that's been very exciting to see and something that I personally am very passionate about. You know, my, um, you know, on a personal note, my parents, you know, I grew up in Texas and 
um, living in San Francisco and seeing how we had, you know, some of the best access to care. My parents were in a very small town. They've now moved here and are closer. And now I know that they have access to an incredible hospital system, um, access to great aging-specific care. And so it's been heartening to see the expansion of that through the efforts of all these incredible researchers and clinicians. Have you had any role in the leukine study? Um, I am a co-investigator on the new one that is starting that um, uh, you probably heard from Dr. Potter recently. And so I will be um, collaborating and helping him with his new clinical trial. Excellent. Yeah. There's a lot of exciting things going on. And what I'm what I'm most happy about and proud about and you you touched on it is when we started this clinic and and the whole hospital was built and everything 10 years ago maybe. It was the first time we had access to good clinicians and research in a five-state region. Mhm. That's absolutely huge. You worked mm-hmm. with Bruce Miller, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so Sam Fran's always been big. Wash U in St. Louis has always been big. We've had, you know, Rob Schneider and his team in, in UCLA and Caleb Alexander out in, in, um, and um, his team in, at Harvard. But it was huge to bring this here and to be able to look at these individual diseases I think that's huge. Do you think? I, as, do you think as a researcher that's going to help you in being able to maybe hopefully find a cure someday that we actually have a specific doctor that looks at FTD and specific doctors that look at Lewy body? Absolutely, we have to. You know, something that. Um, I think a lot of people really feel as they get older is that some of these. Medical centers are, are really sequestered, you know, in specific places, like I mentioned. And so we really want that knowledge and care to be disseminated where you have access in rural areas, where you don't have to live in St. Louis, New York, San Francisco to get that kind of care. And so, um, you know, it's been invigorating to see this change. I think it's good for the research field to have more centers, more places that are examining these these issues with aging. Um, and I think over time, we will need more people coming into the field in different states. Um, a lot of the research that has been done has really been conducted on people who are very highly educated, um, who often don't have as many risk factors. And so we need more research that's being done in rural areas across different states where we're really looking at people with a wide range of risk factors. We don't want to develop a cure for only people who have managed to stave everything off. We need to find cures for, for everyone. Having said that, one thing I've always appreciated about you, <laughs> very much so, my mom died with the tau protein in her brain. And I've had Hunt on several times, yeah. and I'm always, I'm always saying, please focus on that mm-hmm. because you know you came from a center that that was a big focus, mm-hmm. and beta amyloid has always been the big, the big thing that everybody's looked at for mm-hmm. 114 years, right? Um, about Alzheimer's, but tau plays a big part. God bless you for <laughs> for paying attention to that. It matters to me. It's what runs in my family. Absolutely. And the symptoms were exactly the same. Absolutely. As the beta amyloid issues. 
And I think, you know, to your point, I think a lot of us in the field had become frustrated that there had been such a singular focus on amyloid when we know that there are so many other factors at play, like tau, like inflammation, like Lewy body, which often co-occurs with Alzheimer's disease. And so really shifting the field towards looking at multiple sources of change. And I think also, you know, piggybacking off of what you you said there, um, in order for a treatment to work, we have to have what's called target engagement, meaning if you have the same symptoms, but it's due to a different protein, one therapy that's meant for, you know, amyloid may not work for you, even though you have the same symptoms. So we have to better understand how your symptoms map on to underlying disease processes at different stages, because only then are we going to know what's the right therapy? How are we going to know if it's working? You know, lots of these studies 10, 15 years ago with all folks with Alzheimer's disease um, enrolled people who didn't actually have amyloid, and they were testing amyloid treatments, right? And so we have to get better at understanding all the different factors at play and when to target them and how to target them. I love what you do. (laughs) And I love having you on the show because I want to show people that science can be understandable and that you care about what's going on in people's lives and that you are looking to try to find paths that can impact people meeting them where they are. Mm -hmm. It isn't always about the mice. It isn't always about... You know the the science of it in terms of of um, things that aren't real to what our day to day life is, right? Yeah. Well, I, I appreciate it. I um, it's a pleasure and an honor to be able to be in this career path and to work with people as they age and be there for good moments of you know optimal aging, but also be with them when they are experiencing tough times related to Alzheimer's disease. Well, and I hope that people really understand that research can be exciting. You know, it's it's a uh, it may be not may not be for everyone because it, you it, you have to have patience. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> we're, we're not getting, you know, it's a it's a not it's a marathon. It's mm-hmm. not a sprint, right? Mm-hmm. Correct. But um I just want you to know how much I appreciate you and all the work that you do and I have said publicly to all my listeners in all 50 states and 65 countries that I believe we're going to find the cure here. Well, it's uh, thank you for all you do as well, Jill. <laughs> really? You're incredible. Well, thank you. And can I have you back on the show again sometime? Absolutely. I love being here. Well, thank you, Dr. Bree Betcher. Love having you on the show thank and you. making science simple for us. Well, wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. And if anyone is interested in staying up to date on our work, you can always go to our website, which is coloradoagingbrain.org. Um, and... I wanted to leave everyone with some parting thoughts of, you know, have compassion for yourself during this time of the pandemic. This is a tough time for everyone. Try to get your body moving, get outdoors, get the vaccine if you can, um, and really try to take care of yourselves and others. Excellent parting words. And if you have any information for people that still want to be involved in your study, I will post it on my website and I will post it with this podcast. I look forward to talking to you all next week on Dementia Resilience with Jill Lorenz. 
You've been listening to Dementia Resilience with Jill Lorenz. To learn more about her resources, services, classes, or to book speaking engagements, visit Jill's website at summitresiliencetraining.com. A new podcast drops every Tuesday, so join us as we learn more about dementias, resilience, and overcoming obstacles to find a positive outcome. Dementia Resilience with Jill Lorenz can be found on your favorite podcast provider. Please subscribe and give us a five-star rating. Musical and technical support provided by Brian Hunter. See you next week.